What is ethical neuromarketing and how can it increase your ROI and impact in your business? Hi, I'm Jared Krause. I'm the host of the Buying Online Businesses podcast. And today I'm speaking with Roger Dooley, who is an author and international keynote speaker. Now, his books include Friction, The Untapped Force That Can Be Your Most Powerful Advantage, named one of the best business books of 2019, and his other book, Brainfluence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Consumers with Neuromarketing. He writes the popular blog, Neuromarketing, as well as a column at Forbes.com. He's also the founder of Dooley Direct, a consultancy and co-founded college, Confidential, and he's the leading college-bound website owner. He's a serial entrepreneur since he left a senior strategy position at a Fortune 1000 company to enter the home computer market. Now, this is such a valuable, valuable podcast episode that Roger and I did. I'm super excited because he just firehose so much valuable information around marketing, psychology, and emotions. We talk about behavioral marketing. We talk about consumer neuroscience and how we can tap into the data of a consumer and how different forms of data imagery and sensors make us feel along our buying journey. He also just shares a long list of ways that we can market our business better with psychology, neuroscience marketing, emotions. And then we dive into talking about what cognitive biases are, what type of cognitive biases are there are, and he shares a bunch of them, and why we should know these different types of cognitive biases and understand these as business owners, but also just for our own sake of personal development and emotional intelligence in our own lives. We also talk about making logical decisions versus emotional decisions, and which is more prominent and why, and Roger shares just a, such a powerful parable, a really cool story on our emotions and our logic and the relationship between those two and we also talk about a bunch of different books that Roger recommends that I recommend and lastly we talk about the link between emotional intelligence and marketing and there's so much value in this podcast episode I just I just had a really good time talking to Roger he just made it super easy for me as a host and just talked so much about so many great valuable things that we can do in our business I know that you guys are just going to absolutely love it check it out do you have a website you might want to sell either now or in the future? We have a hungry list of cashed up and trained up buyers that want to buy your content website. If you have a site making over $300 per month and want to sell it, head to buyingonlinebusinesses.co forward slash sell your business or email us at info at buyingonlinebusinesses.com because we will likely have a buyer. Details are in the description. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Jared. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Me too, me too. Roger, neuromarketing. This is what I wanted to get to get you on to talk about. Neuromarketing is, is fascinating to me. You've written multiple books and you've been in marketing for a long time now. What is, what is neuromarketing? Like explain it to somebody that is a business owner and why they need to know what neuromarketing is. Right. Well, I guess uh, there are multiple definitions. I use a very inclusive definition, Jared, which is uh, any use of our understanding of how our brains work to make marketing better. And I really kind of divide it from there into two subsets. One field has been called consumer neuroscience, and it's using neuroscience tools and also other tools, things like uh, eye tracking and biometrics that aren't neuroscience to measure how customers or potential customers respond to ads, to content, to packaging, to a retail environment. 
where you have something that you want to evaluate, or, or better, even you have two or three versions of what you want to evaluate, and then you use these tools. Uh, tools uh, from a neuro neuromarketing standpoint could include uh, fMRI, which is uh, something that is primarily used for medical purposes and research purposes. It's not used much in commercial neuromarketing, but it's kind of the gold standard for academic work, where you put uh, a person uh, in this narrow, noisy, gigantic tube that is usually used to provide very detailed imagery for medical purposes. Uh, it's, it can be used to see how people are responding uh, on a second-by-second -second basis, almost in real time, to stimuli, which could be content. Uh, it could be two versions of an advertisement. It could be a package. They've even done taste tests uh, uh, by putting a tube into somebody's mouth and giving them tastes of things. So uh, mm. that's uh, more commonly, commercially, you see EEG used where uh, the subject has a cap with electrodes on it. And these can be ranged from very complicated with wet electrodes, which are about as appetizing as they sound. It means they put some goop in your hair to get really good contact, which provides high quality data uh, down to uh, much simpler headsets with just a couple of electrodes that are very easy. They're not, not intrusive at all, but may not provide the depth or quality of data that the more complicated systems do. Uh, anyway, uh, that's that's one space, and that was how it started. The good news in that space, Jared, is that uh, it has come down in accessibility and price. What used to be something that was only usable for big corporations looking at big problems, a new television campaign, a Super Bowl ad, uh, a major package redesign, where they could afford to spend tens of thousands of dollars on studying the problem, now uh, partly driven by the pandemic, but partly it, it had been evolving before. Now, some of these services are available uh, on a service basis, a software basis, a SaaS model, where you sign up uh, for a monthly subscription, pay you know, $50, $100, $200 a month. And I'm talking American dollars, uh, uh, but uh, th these are not real fixed numbers. Uh, and you get to access these services uh, that you can use to evaluate uh, the same kinds of things. Uh, they are often not as high quality as a detailed lab study, but they are infinitely cheaper and infinitely more convenient. Imagine trying to recruit people like your customers, bring them into a laboratory, uh, having them put goop in their hair so they can look at then your ads and see what their reaction was. That's going to be very difficult to get your customers to want to do that. You're probably going to have yeah. to use subjects that you hope are like your customers, where these new tools are much less intrusive. And we can get into some of the details on that in a bit if you want, but uh, mm. they are much more accessible and can be used by any size business, even small agencies, small businesses. And some are portable enough or unobtrusive enough that they can be used to measure things like training, events, how people are experiencing these things on a minute by minute or second by second basis. Uh, the other category of neuromarketing uh, is what I call behavioral marketing. And that's not evaluating a specific ad or a specific image or message, but rather using the tools of behavioral science, of psychology, behavioral economics to come up with better ways to market. Generally, I would say come up, come up with a, a hypothesis for a better way to market rather than just saying, well, yes, uh, the science says we should go with this headline rather than this other headline. Uh, I would say you would use the science to say, let's test this new headline against our old headline and see if it outperforms it. Uh, and those tools are also accessible to anybody 
who can read a book, listen to a podcast, watch a video on YouTube, and they're very powerful. Uh, and you mm -hmm. see major corporations using these tools. Uh, if you, I, perhaps the best example I can think of, Jared, are travel sites where most major corporations now, the biggest corporations, actually have a behavioral science team uh, for marketing, also for uh, working on internal things, employee experience, and so on. Uh, they understand how powerful behavioral science is. But if you go to book an airplane reservation, you will see all kinds of behavioral science tricks at play there. There's only two rooms left at this price. These yeah. prices are good for today only. 25 people have booked this hotel in the last 24 hours. All of these things are using Robert Cialdini's principles of influence to try and spur customers to act right then before they click through to some other travel website, maybe look at some other options. Yeah, it's it's really, I've done a lot of study in, in marketing and uh, I've read the book, Robert Cialdini Influence. Oh, it's by Robert Cialdini, but the book is called Influence, guys. Check that out if you haven't. We'll probably put a link to it in the show notes. It's such a valuable book on what you would ca call probably behavioral marketing. Is that what you would call behavioral marketing and using psychology? Yeah, it's, it's part of that. Uh, and uh, he, you would, uh, he would probably call it influence marketing. And it isn't specifically a marketing book per se. It's explaining human behavior uh, in a way that marketers can use. My own book, Brainfluence, was much more geared directly to marketers saying, okay, uh, here's the science and here's how, as a marketer, you might be able to apply this science but uh, uh, Bob is actually a pretty savvy business person. He's been around uh, for quite a while, and he often points out ways that these ideas can be used in business. And I, I should insert here uh, that he and I, and just about every other person in the space would say, these tools should be used in an ethical way. Because like anything, it, it can be used yeah. uh, in, uh, in a way that's evil, but it, so can advertising. You can have advertising that's truthful, or you can have advertising that's false or leaves omits important facts that the customer should know. Uh, and in the same way, you can use these scarcity techniques in an honest way, or you can simply make up and say, hey, I've only got two of these left, uh, even though you've got a million of them. And doing things ethically is, is really important. I agree. There's been times where I've seen there's only two seats left on a flight like you've mentioned before, and there's more than two seats left on the flight. You know, you see that when you're booking it. There's only these two seats left at this price. Uh, but when you get on the flight, there's a lot of seats there. And well, yes. Really now, there, there's ways to finesse that, Jared. Um, it's possible that the particular site you're looking at only has two seats that the airline has made available. If they sell those two seats, they go back to the airline and get two more. You know, or uh, yes, the seats priced at $220. There's only two available, but there's also uh, additional seats priced at $221. Or, you know, mm -hmm. who knows? There, there's a million sort of quasi-ethical workarounds. To me, uh, I would really like a, a more honest approach on these things. You know, if something is really in short supply, if there are two physical seats left, uh, then okay, yeah, use that. But don't play these games where you've got a plane that's 90% empty, uh, but you're still creating this false scarcity. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think reputation is is worth upholding. And if the consumer can work out, like a lot of people, are, a lot of consumers are pretty smart these days in how marketing has evolved and can pick up on these things. I know that I'm in the space and I know it, but I know that there's so many people that aren't in online business, don't know much about marketing that have become clued in are quite intuitive to these different scarcity tactics and these different things that or psychological influence marketing hacks that may be used in an unethical way. And 
I think people have a pretty good BS radar detector on. So yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned the ethic, you know, being ethical with this. You also mentioned there's like so many cognitive biases um, that people should know. Uh, and this can be attached to e-commerce. It can be attached to any sort of business. What is a cognitive bias when we're looking at digital marketing and, and selling? Cognitive biases are ways that our brains uh, behave in a way that isn't entirely logical. You might consider them errors, uh, say calculation errors in certain cases. And there are, depending on how you count them, dozens of these. Uh, there are some counts that go over 100. I've seen uh, numbers as high as 130 cognitive biases. Some of these are uh, minor variations on the others, but a few are really important. I probably a fundamental bias that we have is that humans are loss averse. Uh, people hate feeling a sense of loss. They hate losing something. And that often outweighs a gain. So the exact same problem posed to somebody as a loss seems more important or uh, different than the same exact math applied as a gain. So if you're told that you know, you've got a serious uh, medical problem, nine out of 10 patients who take this medicine survive, that sounds pretty good. Uh, and you probably say, okay, let's do it. Uh, that same exact math, if they said one out of every patient dies, suddenly, whoa, uh, what are the alternatives to this? Uh, those odds aren't very yeah. good. Uh, and that works uh, not just in circumstances like that, but in financial terms, uh, losing money looms bigger than gaining the same amount of money. And there's a whole ton of experiment uh, experimentation on this. Uh, the work of Daniel Kahneman, his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, another one I highly recommend for somebody who wants to uh, do a deep dive into this, uh, talks about that a lot. But there are lots of cognitive biases. Uh, there are, oh, let's see, well, temporal discounting uh, is one kind of bias. If I, I say, hey, Jared, I'll give you uh, $10 today, or in two months, I'll give you $20. Like you being a smart guy might say, well, hey, I don't need the $10 right now. I'll take the 20 in two months. But many people will take that $10 right now. Uh, even though they don't necessarily need it, uh, they discount that future value. And it's something that's very common. And that's why you have all kinds of sort of front-loaded financial offers out there that offer you know, something very immediate in the short term because people are discounting what's going to happen down the road. Everything from adjustable rate mortgages to credit card deals where, hey, we'll give you a $200 credit if you sign up for our credit card. And all these things are giving mm. people a value in the moment. Uh, there is recency bias. We tend to uh, remember things that happened more recently. Uh, there's uh, peak end experience, uh, which says that we, if we have an experience of some kind, whether it's a, a an experience as a customer, an experience in an amusement park, or whatever, uh, the two areas that are most important are the peak experience, whatever was sort of the emotional high point, whether it was good or bad for us, and then how it ended. And so one practical application of that is in the medical field where colonoscopies used to be pretty uncomfortable. Uh, today, they're between anesthesia and the current equipment, uh, they actually aren't uh, uncomfortable, but they were pain. They used to be painful. And what they found was simply by prolonging the end so it was less uncomfortable. In other words, there was a comfortable period at the end of the experience uh, before they said, okay, uh, we're done. That made the entire experience feel better to the customer. They remembered it as a less painful experience. So, I mean, there are many, many ways that our brains work uh, in a somewhat incorrect fashion. Uh, often these are shortcuts that may serve us well in certain cases. You know, if we believe evolutionary psychology, a lot of our current 
decision-making processes date back to our days as hunter-gatherers. Uh, for a hunter-gatherer, uh, a piece of fruit in the hand is worth much more than a piece of fruit that might be there two weeks from now, or maybe it won't be there two weeks from now. And yeah. you know, so there, there are good reasons for some of these. Oh, very good reasons. Like fear is a, is it like we've talked about the, the, you know, fear. Um, we don't want to possibly run off a cliff. If we didn't have fear, we would just do that um, and possibly die. So uh, I think there's. Right. And that's, you know, I think our stress reaction too is an example of that because uh, reacting to uh sudden stimuli uh, and having a kick in our adrenaline is good if you had to worry about a carnivorous animal hiding in the woods. Uh, <laughs> but when we're in an office environment and our boss uh, sends us a memo and says, hey, we have to talk, uh, come to my office at four o'clock, uh, that's going to kick in uh, though that same effect, uh, but it's not going to serve us very well because we don't have to suddenly uh, run away at high speed. We just <laughs> have to show up at four o'clock. So yeah, it, there's good and bad. Yeah, I, I'm very curious about the one that you mentioned on where people will take the gratifications right away rather than delayed gratification. What's that cognitive bias? The one where you explained where people will kind of buy something on afterpay in a way that they they it might be like 50 months interest free what is that cognitive bias called and well uh, it's typically called temporal discounting some temporal discounting is okay uh, if you say i'll give you ten dollars today or ten dollars and ten cents uh, in a year i'll take the ten dollars today because i can uh, not that i'm going to invest that ten dollars but it's not a good deal to wait a year for it uh, but yeah opportunity uh, cost it's, it's, it becomes a <laughs> cognitive bias a negative cognitive bias when we make decisions that don't really make um, logical sense. Now, obviously too, if we have zero money in our wallet, $10 today may be better than $20 in a month. But assuming we're like most people where it's not gonna be life altering, uh, we need to be making those kinds of decisions in a somewhat calculated way. Yeah, yeah, I got ya. It's fascinating because as humans, like our makeup is that if you said like, you can have a banana now, or you can have it in, you know, back in the day, like ancestral, like you could have two in two months time or one month time or a week's time, it might actually be best to take that banana and eat it right now because there might actually be no bananas in two weeks time. Right. Yeah. There was really not necessarily a concept of uh, high trust where you knew for sure that something would be there uh, just, just because of the nature of the circumstances, you know? So yeah, it's different. And I think we even see that uh, in our pet behavior today. Uh, if I give my dog uh, two dog biscuits, uh, he's not going to save one for later. He's going to eat them both right away. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think their survival mechanisms are a lot stronger than ours as humans, which have evolved probably past what a, a canine might be. So I want to talk about the psychology and the behavioral marketing because a lot of people listening are have an online business and they may want to change the copy in their on their website or on their blog posts or on their product descriptions what are some of the things that you've seen cognitive biases used that could be good examples for people that they might want to change some copy on their site right well i think uh, probably um, i would focus for somebody who's just getting started uh, in this rather than focusing a lot on cognitive biases what i would do is uh, focus on say cialdini's principles originally six and now seven 
Uh, and some of these relate to cognitive biases. Uh, uh, social proof, for example, is a mm. cognitive bias. Some people call the bandwagon effect. Uh, you see other people doing something, you're more likely to do that thing yourself. So they aren't unrelated. But I think he provides a better framework for understanding these. And I think since I mentioned uh, social proof, uh, that's a great one. We see a lot of it already in digital marketing. You'll mm. see sign up for our newsletter, join 47,000 other subscribers like you to our newsletter. Uh, and that's, that's a smart way to market uh, yourself, whether it's listing your number of customers, users of your software, uh, whatever, because you are showing that other people are doing what you want this new person to do. And the more persuasive that argument is, the more comfortable they are doing it. Uh, you know, if you're looking for a restaurant and you come to uh, two side by side, one is very busy, full of customers. Another one is completely empty. Even though you would get served faster in the empty one, you will probably choose the one with all the customers because you figure they know what they're doing. The other one might be questionable. Uh, but there are some things that you can do in social proof that exploit some additional biases. Uh, one is uh, there is a precision bias for numbers. Generally, precise numbers are seen as more reliable, more truthful. You could, instead of saying we have 20,000 subscribers, you could use your actual number, which you probably have someplace in your software that's uh, 20,125. Uh, that's going to be accurate. It's going to be truthful and it's going to be just a little bit more persuasive. Uh, you can use, instead of simple numbers, uh, you can use testimonials uh, and testimonials are they're a form of social proof, uh, but mm -hmm. uh, they are most convincing if they include a photo or better even a video uh, showing that it's a real person. You know, when you see these testimonials of, wow, great product, and it's like two initials after that, you have no idea whether they just made that up for the website or whether it's actually a real person who needed to remain anonymous. But when yeah. you see uh, a real person whose photo is there, maybe their company affiliation is there, then that makes it more powerful. And in fact, one example that I've seen that's kind of interesting is it uh, blends social proof into authority. Authority is another Cialdini principle uh, that instead of being sort of regular people are doing this, it is uh, an endorsement or somehow somebody who is an expert in the field saying something good about your product or being a user of your product. Mm. And uh, that uh, that's very powerful. If you look at any business book, what do you see on the front or back cover? You see endorsements from best-selling authors, from subject matter experts. Uh, these are exploiting authority. You know, you may not have heard of Roger Dooley, but if you see endorsement from Bob Cialdini on the cover, say, whoa, okay, maybe this Dooley guy knows something. Or maybe Bob was just doing him a favor. Who knows? Uh, that authority is very powerful. And uh, often it is, you know, if you're buying basketball shoes, uh, it's great to have social proof. Hey, we've sold uh, a million of uh, this particular style or some endorsements from uh, people who just randomly wear the shoe. But you would do much better with an endorsement from LeBron James or some other famous basketball player. Uh, and this applies in any field where there are people who are known authorities. You can get authority in different ways. Uh, you can have uh, people who merely have titles. Uh, if you're selling something even remotely related to health, having somebody uh, in a white lab coat 
somebody who is a doctor, whether they're a PhD or an MD, uh, all of these things lend authority. Using imagery, the person in a white lab coat who is actually in a lab with maybe a microscope and maybe some lab equ equipment around, uh, that's going to add a veneer of authority to your marketing. So all these things can do it. And, and to circle back to the point I was going to make, Jared, that uh, one company I saw used social proof in an interesting way, uh, in a very smart way, I think, as long as you don't uh, overdo it. Uh, they had some testimonials from three customers who used their software. It was pretty normal. Three sort of random people who use their software. They had what the nice thing the person said about it under it. They had a little icon sized picture of the of the individual, a photo of the individual, their name uh, and their uh, company in tiny print underneath it. Above the text, though, they had a rather large logo from the company. And these were prominent companies. So mm -hmm. what they were doing was leveraging the fact that they had a happy user at this company into a little bit of authority that, hey, this person isn't just anybody. He works at Google or wherever. Uh, and it almost turns it into an authority endorsement from Google. Not quite. If anybody really looks at it, they'll realize, okay, uh, this guy is not, you know, a Google uh, uh, senior fellow or something. It's probably some random person. But nevertheless, uh, it does have that uh, veneer of authority. So there, there are subtle cues you can use uh, to create authority. And when you combine authority and social proof that way, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, authority, lending authority is huge. And that's something that people are starting to do more with their blogs in our space, where it's important for Google to rank content that has been written by people that have an authority or websites that have an authority. And that's why a lot of people are looking to have writers come and write on their website that have authority in the space and use those certain images of those authors that are maybe in a white lab coat doing a test and, you know, actually showing like I have proof in this space and here's me doing the work or here's me if I'm a, you know, fishing you know, fishing expert, here's a photo of me with a fish, catching a fish. Those things really do help. So, wow, you just fire, you just, Roger, that was amazing. You just fire hose so much valuable information to us. I just didn't know how to, how to tackle it and break down each single one. I think this, uh, the testimonials are so damn valuable. And what I've found is that the longer the conversations are, like we, we have this on our website where we have success stories, which are basically case studies or testimonials that people have worked with us and bought uh, businesses. I sit down with them and I chat with them and I just ask them like, how was your experience? What did you learn? How can you share what you've learned with others? And it's a really good sort of testimonial that people can listen to, they get value from because they're working out how people have bought these businesses before, what they need to look out for that this other person might have like failed at or had to learn the hard way for themselves. And it might be like an hour long conversation up front. It just looks like a valuable video, but really it's an amazing testimonial that they can do it as well, which is social proof too. And once you bank it up with all of these, like if people go to our site and click on success stories, you see a whole page of just a few people that have done this. So that's, I think that's super valuable. Well, that's, uh, that's really smart, Jared, I think, because the more detail there is in a testimonial, the more believable it is and the more it'll help a potential customer or client uh, translate that experience into their own experience. If somebody just says, wow, 
fantastic service. That doesn't tell you much. I mean, it's good that it's there, but it doesn't really tell you. But if when somebody can relate what the service was like, how it transformed their business or transformed even one small thing in their business for the better, then uh, that just not only makes it more believable because there's detail there, but it also shows the customer or client uh, how to relate to that, how it might affect their business. Now, in your book, Brain, Brain, Brainfluence, sorry, um, guys, there'll be links to that in the show notes as well. You talk about logic versus emotion. And we all know that people are buying based on emotions, but sometimes we believe that people will buy based on logic. Can you Can you talk to the relationship between buying based on emotions versus logic and why we buy based on emotions? The sort of ratio of logic to emotion in any purchase varies a lot, depending on, primarily depending on the product category to some degree, also mm. on the customer. For example, if you are marketing fragrances, you are going to market primarily with emotional imagery. You look at fragrance ads, you don't see appeals to logic that, you know, our perfume lasts 27% longer than the leading brand, according to our lab studies. You don't see 83% customers preferred our fragrance to this other brand in a blind test. You, know, you don't just don't see that. Uh, you, all you see is imagery, very, very little text at all. You see images of romantic situations, maybe of people you would like to be, people you would like to be with. Uh, that is almost completely emotional marketing. Mm. And the prices of fragrances kind of indicate that because it's pretty <laughs> hard to logically justify, uh, you know, paying a massive amount of money for uh, half an ounce of something. On the other hand, if you're selling industrial machinery in the B2B market, you are going to skew heavily toward uh, that logical, rational side of things. You are going to have to furnish a lot of information about the product, its characteristics, about logistics, when can this be delivered? Because if it's not on time, then it's going to shut the plant down. What kind of warranties are there? What kind of service is there? If this thing breaks down, what's going to happen? Or if it fails? You know, there are a million very important logical, rational questions that often need to be answered in a B2B situation. Uh, I would not discount those. But even in B2B marketing, or for that matter, marketing a technical product uh, like, oh, a camera or a... Uh, a drone or something, you know, something that has a lot of tech specs that the uh, purchaser is going to want to know and understand. Uh, there uh, is emotion. Mm. You know, actually, if you one thing that comes to mind in, beyond even B two B in the consumer market, people buy iPhones often not because the specs are better uh, than the top of the line Android models, the top Pixel or the top Galaxy, but in part because of the brand. They want to be part of the Apple brand, particularly younger consumers heavily favor Apple uh, because all of their peers are using Apple and uh, they would look weird when they're messaging back and forth uh, if they didn't have an Apple phone. So, uh, you know, there are these non-conscious drivers uh, uh, that affect that. That's more of an emotional decision. They don't look at the, you know, specs on the camera and say, wow, this one has, you know, uh, 10 more mega megapixels or the telephoto lens is a little bit better. Often it is an emotional decision, but even in B2B marketing, you know, people always say, yeah, well, all this psychology stuff uh, is great, but you know, our customers just make uh, decisions based on price and features uh, and there's, there's no emotion involved, but that's <laughs> not true. 
It's yeah. simply not true. Uh, there are many things that can enter into a B2B decision. When a purchasing person, whether or decision maker, could be somebody who's actually a buyer or maybe an executive in the company where this decision has been pushed up to a higher executive level, even the CEO, they are thinking, maybe not consciously, but unconsciously of, okay, how is this decision going to affect me personally? How are people in the company going to view me? What happens if it turns out to be a great decision? Will mm. I get promotion? Will I get a, get praise from other people? If it goes wrong, will I ever get a raise again? Will I get fired? Uh, there are all these things, uh, and even novelty. You know, I was in the IT business for a while, and you think again of purchasing a big hardware upgrade for your company's network or updating to a brand new network operating system, which uh, is a very wrenching decision, involves expense and training and all kinds of stuff. So it's not a, not a decision companies take lightly. I have seen managers make decisions to upgrade to the newest hardware or the newest software, not because their business really demanded it, because they wanted to play with the latest new thing that was out there. Uh, they wanted to have that experience. They wanted perhaps to improve their own resume. So if they were looking for a job at some point, they would say, hey, yes, uh, I'm fully versed in this latest hardware, this latest software. Uh, and some of this may have been conscious. They may have been, been thinking, wow, I could be looking for a job in six months. Uh, and so I better get trained on this. But in other cases, they really think that this is the right decision for the business, even though underneath the surface, there are these other drivers. You know, um, let me uh, yeah. give you a quick parable, Jared. There is a an author and professor, Jonathan Haidt, who says that uh, our decision-making resembles a rider in an elephant. You know, you have a human sitting on top of an elephant, and the human often thinks that he's in control of where the elephant is going, but uh, really it's the elephant. And in the metaphor, basically the elephant is our emotional state, our emotion, emotional decision-making. And the rider is this little rational, logical piece on top. And according to Height, elephant is the one that decides where the pair is going. The rider may think he's in control, but really the only thing that's left is for the rider to explain where the pair went and why. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, this, this is not, a, this, that pair of, uh, parable or metaphor of his is relatively new. Uh, it's a few years old. For decades, advertisers, salespeople have said that people buy with emotion and justify with logic. Uh, and that really sounds a lot like the elephant making the decision and the rider saying, this is why we made that decision. That's so good, Roger. Like I see this, I see this in my business as well. And it's such a logical decision to it, people to join what we do is 150 bucks a month, 150 bucks a month. And it might take you a couple of months or even if it takes a year, you know, to buy a business, it's so cheap in how like the ROI that you're going to get back from the business, the education you get back, it's ridiculous. It's so damn logical to do, but then you have people that these, these logical decisions sitting on top of the elephant that have all these other emotions that are attached to it, that prevent people from doing so like, oh, can I actually do this? And then they get down the years down the track and they realize like, oh, wow, like I'm going to back up my 
I'm going to back up my decisions of why I didn't make it because I was emotional. Oh, it wasn't the right time for me. Or I didn't have enough money or all these other things. You know, I've got too many kids, too busy. And that, and we justify it. And it happens on the other reason, other way as well, where I see people that do jump in. It's a very logical decision. They buy the business and then they justify why they bought the business, but the business has done very well. And they justify it based on whether it's good or bad, but the emotions end up taking control. As much as I would like to say people buy based on logic with, within our business, because it's investing and ROI, and if you spend this much, you should make this much back. Logically, it's just so damn smart to do, but the emotions are what people uh, get in people's way. So that parable of the elephant and the rider is just spot on. I'm so glad you shared that with us. Right. You know, I think even in large company acquisitions, uh, you know, mega acquisitions involving billions of dollars, uh, yeah. you see emotion entering into it where, especially if you have a couple of businesses competing for to buy the same business, uh, people casually tack a billion dollars onto their offer so they get the deal. Um, yeah. And at that point, emotion is really playing into it. We're not going to lose. If we don't get this business, we're uh, going to fail. And so we've got to win, uh, even though uh, they the ego now, by the hurt. time they complete the acquisition, the chances of that proving to be a profitable move uh, are minimal. Uh, and, mm. you know, I think at, the, at the, those big levels, often they don't work out. Uh, I think that at smaller acquisition levels, uh, they can be because you can get your arms around a business and the impact uh, in a much more immediate way than mm. what a merger of two giant corporations would look like five years down the road. There's just so much more in the way. It's harder to turn a big ship than to turn a little boat that's going in a great direction. It's funny that this just leads into us needing to work more. Like if we want, as a personal development thing in marketing, like we just need to really work on our emotions more and understand our emotions and understand emotional intelligence, I, I believe, to help us make better decisions. Do you see a, a direct link and tie with some of the things that you learn with, you know, that you've talked about in neuros, neuroscience marketing, brain fluence, linked with emotional intelligence? Well, I think so. If you are aware of a cognitive bias, uh, yeah. then you have the at least the opportunity to recognize that and recognize how it might influence your decision. Uh, and, you know, it's it's still difficult. Even, even if you recognize that, you have biases, they're still there. You know, yeah, a common yeah. kind of bias that I don't really uh, get into, but it's uh, the sort of bias and diversity training that people get. They get training on biases. In general, that has not proven to be particularly effective. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's the quality of instruction in some cases. In other cases, uh, it's the mere fact that a very busy person is being uh, forced to do this training, which they resent, uh, and it has sort of a backfire effect. There's a cognitive bias for you, the backfire effect, where something, uh, you know, uh, you try and push somebody one way and it ends up going the uh, the opposite direction. You know, I think, uh, uh, but awareness does help. You know, if you are uh, aware of temporal discounting, for example, and you're presented with an offer that has a time component to it, uh, you can evaluate your initial reaction and say, okay, my initial reaction was, this is a good deal, this is a bad deal. Uh, here, I've run the numbers. Uh, here's what logic says. And then figure out maybe what the right course is. But it's almost, it's probably almost impossible to overcome all biases, but being aware of them can certainly help. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. That's cool. Wow, I, I, we could just chat forever and ever and ever, but I just want to say thank you so much for your time, Roger. It's, it's been great to have you on. We'll put links to your books and stuff in the show notes, but where can people find out more about what you're doing? 
The best place to start, Jared, would be rogerdooley.com. There I've got uh, links to uh, my other content, my Forbes uh, content, my social media profiles. I'm most active on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I am Roger Dooley. Awesome, guys. Check those links out in the show notes. Everybody that is listening, thank you so much for listening. If you own a business, make sure that you go back through this podcast episode again and listen to it very carefully because Roger just firehosed value to us. And it was, I, to be honest, Roger, just list, just listening to you whilst I was being the host, I was like, wow, how do I take these in different tangents? And you just came up with more and more and more valuable, valuable insights. And I just want to say, I'm so grateful for that. So people listening, re-listen to this. If you do know somebody that's in online business or about to get into online business, do them a massive favor and share this podcast episode with them. Thanks again, Roger, and I'll speak to you guys very soon. Thanks for having me on, Jared.